Well, good morning, everybody. I am really glad to be here this morning, and I'm also glad that you're here, whether you're worshiping in person or you're watching online. And I am super excited this morning because we are in the second half of this series called Asking for a Friend. And today is when we start to answer your questions. And we've got a big one to tackle today. We'll get to that in a minute. But as we get started here, I want to ask you a question. And here's what I want to know. In our world today, who can you trust? That's become a difficult question to answer. Who can you trust? Well, let's look at some possibilities. Uh, how about the mainstream media? Well, back in the day, uh, there was a man named Walter Cronkite. He was a, a news anchor, and people called him the most trusted man in America. Unfortunately, Walter is long gone. <laughs> Recently, a poll said that just five years ago, in 2016, 76% of American adults had at least some trust in the news that was reported by big media outlets. But now, five years later, 58% have that same trust. So 76% to 58% in five years. We're losing trust in the media. But what about the president? Well, that's not looking good either. Uh, just this week, a poll reported that only 44% of Americans see the president as honest. A full 50% say that he's dishonest. So if you don't trust the media and you don't even trust the president, where can you turn? Well, don't worry, because Facebook has got this covered. They made a promise to notify you when there's fake news. That's great, isn't it? Well, hold on. Just a few days ago, we found out that you can't trust Facebook either. That was a shocker. So this really is a tough question, isn't it? In our world today, who can you trust? Well, many of us here are Christians, uh, so we might say, you can always trust God. But now I can picture somebody hearing that and then asking, well, how do you know God? And do you have a response for that? Well, again, many of us would say, we know God because of the Bible. He has revealed himself to us through his word. And then you know what the next question would be, right? How can you trust the Bible? And this is today's question. Why trust the Bible? I got an email from a college student who asked us to deal with this question. And she said, I have been asked countless times, how do I know what the Bible says is true? Now, that, that statement does not surprise me at all. Uh, there has been a lot of skepticism about the Bible, really for a long time, but in the last few years, accusations against the Bible have really ramped up. Many people say this book is outdated, it's irrelevant, and a lot of it is simply untrue. So that's what some people say, but what does the Bible say about itself? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, 
for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, the Bible is no regular book. It was breathed out by God. It's God's message to humanity. Everything we need to know is right here. So if you're keeping score, we have two very different ideas here. On one side, you have the people who say, no, you can't trust the Bible. On the other side, you have Scripture itself saying that the Bible is trustworthy. It's absolutely true because it came from God himself. And that leaves us with a choice to make. Who are you going to trust? Well, it's interesting, in our country at least, a growing number of people don't believe the Bible, don't believe you can trust it. I uh, was looking at some stats about Gen Z. Uh, that's the generation that was born between 1999 and 2015. So this age group is no older than 22. And based on research from the Barna Group, only 4% of Gen Z have a biblical worldview. Now, now, what do we mean by that? Well, think about the biggest questions that we have in life. Who am I? Why am I here? Does God exist? How do I know that I'm a good person? What happens to me after I die? Now, if you have a biblical worldview, you, you look at the Bible, you base your answers to those big questions on what Scripture says. And again, only 4% of Gen Z are doing that. And listen, I'm not picking on this generation. I love this age group. All three of my kids are Gen Z. Now, I do believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And I also consider it a privilege to parent and mentor young people in this generation. So am I concerned about that 4% number? Sure I am. But in a way, it's not surprising. Think about it. As this generation grows into adulthood, what are they likely to hear from entertainment, from education, from their peers? Again and again, they will hear voices that undermine the reliability of the Bible. And there is a strong influence here. But what about the influence of the church? Well, in certain congregations, that influence is still strong. But if you look across the country, the reputation of the church has been damaged in a significant way. We've seen a long list of scandals involving Christian leaders. And, and people look at that and they say, well, why should I believe what that guy said? And we've also seen high-profile Christians who just walked away from their faith. They don't believe in the Bible anymore. They don't believe in Christianity. And then, beyond all of that, we also have progressive churches that publicly deny the Bible's authority. A few months ago, a church in Nashville put out a meme, and it went viral. And it said, among other things, the Bible is not the Word of God. It's really just a human response to God. So can you blame Gen Z for having trust issues? Seriously, why trust the Bible? Well, that's the question we're going to answer this morning. And this may actually be the most important week of this series. I say that because every other week 
we are looking to the Bible to ask our big question, or to answer our big questions. So today we're saying, why would we do that in the first place? Why do we look for truth in these pages? And before we get too far here, I want you to know, it doesn't matter who you are. This message is very relevant and very important for you. If you struggle to, to believe that the Bible is God's word, this message is for you. If you have a strong faith and, and you don't struggle with doubts, this message is for you too because you have people in your life that don't believe what you believe. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So if you are a follower of Jesus and you trust that the Bible is true, can you explain why you believe that? Now, for many of us, this feels intimidating. It, it feels like you have to know all these answers and, and be ready for debates and arguments. But the good news is, you don't have to be a Bible expert because we're not trying to go out and win arguments. We just want to be ready. We want to be prepared to give reasons for the hope that we have. And we're going to see that we have plenty of reasons to believe that God's Word is trustworthy. So let's get to it. And first, let's start with the basics. What is the Bible? Well, the Bible is one big book, and it's made up of 66 documents, or little books. It was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors from completely different backgrounds. These authors included kings, fishermen, doctors, military leaders, and tax collectors. They wrote in different periods of history, in different parts of the world, to different audiences. And against all odds, these different authors tell one cohesive story. It's the true story of God and his relationship with us. So how were these authors able to do that? Well, it goes back to 2 Timothy 3.16. Scripture was inspired and breathed out by God. So what do we say to all the people who reject that claim? Well, let's go through a list of questions and objections, and I'll give some brief responses. And by the way, I'm drawing from many different sources here. And if you want to dig deeper on any of these topics, I'd be glad to point you to some resources. Uh, just shoot me an email, doug at plumcreek.org. So here's the first objection. Isn't our Bible different than what was originally written? Now that's a very good question, because if what we have today is full of changes and edits and additions, that's a pretty big problem, isn't it? Well, there's a field of study that sorts through this issue. It's called textual criticism. And this is not a negative thing. Textual critics just examine the text closely. And they want to know, does what we have today match the original documents? And to figure this out, textual critics look for two things, accuracy and date. Now, with accuracy... It's important to know that we don't have any of the original biblical documents. We don't have the parchment that Matthew or Mark wrote on. 
But we do have quite a few copies, and we can compare all of these copies to see if they agree with each other. So accuracy is one component. And with the date, critics are asking, of all those manuscript copies that we have, when were each of them discovered? If a copy was discovered close to the time when the author wrote the original document, that copy is considered more reliable. So how does the Bible stack up in these two areas? Number one, how many manuscripts do we have? And number two, how long ago were they found? Well, let's compare the Bible to other ancient writings. You may have heard of a guy named Aristotle. He wrote a book called Poetics. Now, we have five copies or manuscripts of that book, and, and they were written down within 1,400 years of the time when Aristotle wrote. Now, that may seem like a long time, but textual critics say that's, that's actually pretty good. Uh, what we have today is probably very close to what Aristotle wrote because we can compare these manuscripts and, and see that they match each other. Well, let's look at another example. How about the Iliad by Homer? Uh, you might have read this book in school. I was supposed to read it, but I didn't get very far, to be honest. Uh, but with the Iliad, we have 1,800 manuscripts or manuscript fragments, and they date back to around 400 years within the time Homer wrote. And historians look at this and they're like, now you're talking, because this is a lot of manuscripts and they date back to relatively close to Homer's time. Textual critics would call that a high level of reliability. But what about the Bible? Well, it's pretty amazing. We have about 5,800 manuscripts or manuscript fragments of just the New Testament. The earliest we have is, is a small piece of the book of John, and it's dated to within 50 years of the time that John wrote it. And that fragment is called Papyrus 52. It's in a museum over in England, and I would love to see it someday. But if you use the same criteria that we use for other classical works, we'd have to agree that the Bible is very reliable. Now, I don't want to be overly simplistic about this, because if you start to dig and do your own research, you will learn that these manuscripts don't always agree with each other completely. And those disagreements are called variants. And some people would jump on that and say, well, because of these variants, you, you can't trust the Bible. And I want you to be prepared for that, because if you go out on the internet, you may find some things that could shake your faith. Just be aware, these accusations, they often misrepresent the truth. Are there variants in these manuscripts? Sure, there are. But the vast majority of them are very minor. Uh, they don't change the meaning or the interpretation of the Bible. Uh, it's like this. Have you ever made a typo in one of your emails? Maybe you wanted to write the word the, and instead of typing T-H-E, you typed T-E-H. Yes, that is a mistake, but everybody knows what you were trying to say there. And, and that's what we're talking about with the majority of these variants. Now, there are a few that are more significant. But these significant variants, they make up less than 1% of the total. And even in those cases, they don't contradict the overall teaching of Scripture. 
And on top of that, your Bible already tells you about these variants. You have footnotes in your Bible that points them out. One classic example is John chapter 8. It's the story of the woman who was caught in adultery, but then later she was forgiven by Jesus. Now, if you look at the footnote on the bottom of that page, it'll say something like this. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have this passage. So did this story actually happen? Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But if it did not happen, does that change anything we know about Jesus? Absolutely not, because everything Jesus says and does in this story, it matches up with everything else we learn about him from the rest of the Gospels. So all that to say, the Bible has nothing to hide. It's very true to the original documents. So that brings us to the next objection. Someone might say, well, sure, it's great to know that we have a really good idea what the original documents said, but what about the content itself? Doesn't history and science and archaeology contradict the Bible? That's another great question. And the first thing I would say here is this. Make sure you know the author's intention. Sometimes the biblical authors use metaphors and similes that are not meant to be taken literally. For example, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. Now, is he saying that he's an actual door? Of course not. Here's another example. Uh, in my life group this week, we studied Nahum chapter 3. Now, Nahum was a prophet, and in this chapter, he's speaking to the city of Nineveh, and he says, you have increased the number of your merchants till they are more numerous than the stars in the sky. Now, scientists estimate that there are around 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. So is Nahum saying that there were more than 200 billion trillion merchants in the city of Nineveh? Of course not. Prophets often use poetic language and imagery. So don't look at one of these examples and say that the Bible is inaccurate. But now let's be clear. There are plenty of places in the Bible where it is speaking literally about miracles and spectacular events. For example, when the Gospels say that Jesus rose from the dead, that's not just a metaphor. That's a historical event. So what about these miracles? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but first, let's look at history and archaeology for a second. Do those studies contradict the Bible? Well, you do have some issues that you have to work through here, uh, sort of like those textual variants that I mentioned. But in reality, there have been plenty of amazing discoveries in archaeology that do confirm the truth of the Bible. Here's a great example. In 1993, Archaeologists discovered a stone slab called the Tel Dan Steel. Now, this is less than 30 years ago. Many of us remember 1993 very well. And if you're Gen Z, just ask us about it. We can tell you. But what's cool about this stone slab is this. Before 1993, many scholars just didn't believe that King David from the Old Testament was a historical figure. They, didn't, they thought he was just made up. 
But this old stone has an inscription that dates back to more than 800 years before Christ. And this inscription states that a certain individual killed Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, king of the house of David. Now that statement lines up perfectly with the biblical account. You can read this in 2 Kings. So this old rock proves that David, the king, in the Old Testament, he was a genuine historical figure, not some made-up hero like Hercules or Batman. And that's just one example. I could give you many, many more. But let's get back to that question I mentioned a minute ago. Why should we believe in the miracles of the Bible? Some people really get hung up here. Uh, you got things like the creation story, Noah's flood, uh, the parting of the Red Sea, or all the miracles of Jesus. And some people shake their heads and they say, ah, sorry, I, I just can't buy that. Now, there are several issues here. First, our modern world has a strong bias against miracles. Uh, and in a way, I get that. But in another way, it's completely illogical. Because the truth is, we are surrounded by miracles. We just don't think about them that way. Here's an illustration. Let's say that I have three large piles up here on the stage. A pile of rocks, a pile of sand, and a pile of doorknobs. So each one of these piles is made up of uh, lifeless, inorganic matter. Now, what would it take, how long would we have to wait for any of these piles to come to life? What, what would that take? Uh, if, if life spontaneously appeared and something crawled out of one of these piles, in, in whatever amount of time that took, what would we call that? We'd call it a supernatural event. We'd, we'd call it a miracle. Uh, but that's exactly what happened in history. Once upon a time, there was no life. And then later, life appeared. Even the biggest skeptic wouldn't argue with that. But what kind of explanation do scientists have for the creation of life? They really don't have one. So let's start by admitting that miraculous events are nothing new in this universe. We are here. That's a miracle. But then sometimes you read a story in the Bible, and it just feels unbelievable, right? Like the story of Jonah, swallowed by a great fish. He's inside the fish until the third day when it spits him out, uh, and he's still alive. He goes to preach to Nineveh. Uh, now, that sounds pretty outlandish, right? I, I'd have to agree, but just a couple thoughts here. First of all, let's not decide what's true based on our own feelings. My feelings don't change reality at all. But then second, have you ever heard the phrase, the truth is stranger than fiction? Lots of real-life events have taken place that sound almost unbelievable. Just a few months ago, the Cape Cod Times wrote a story about a man who has been called a real-life Jonah. A 57-year-old lobster diver named Michael Packard was actually swallowed by a humpback whale. That's this year. Uh, Packard was diving, fishing for lobster, and all of a sudden he felt this, this big bump, and then everything went dark. He said, 
I was completely inside. I, I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I, I'm done. I'm dead. But Packard began struggling. And soon the whale shook its head, and after about 40 seconds, it spit him out into the sea. Now, this article said, people in the fishing industry and people who know about whales, they're finding this hard to believe. But it really doesn't matter what anybody thinks or feels about this story. If it happened, it happened. And the same thing is true about biblical miracles. If they happened, they happened. But for me, the bottom line is this. If God does exist, and we have many reasons to believe that he does, it makes total sense that God would prove his existence by doing something completely God-like, something only he could do. Now, I could go on about different miracles in the Bible, but if you're struggling with this kind of thing, I really encourage you to focus on Jesus. And this is another great question. Why should we believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Well, I love this topic because there are so many great reasons to believe that Jesus really is who the Bible says he is. And just a few quick examples. First, if the gospel accounts of Jesus were fake, you would expect them to be written very differently. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they make the disciples look like fools and cowards. And if you're altering history or making up the story completely, You'd want your main characters to be inspiring and heroic, especially if you are one of those main characters. You'd want to edit out anything that makes you look ridiculous. Another piece of evidence along these lines is the portrayal of women in the Gospels. In the Gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus, women were the first witnesses to show up at the empty tomb. Now, at the time... Women were not valued the way they should have been. Uh, in that culture, a woman's testimony was often not admitted in a court of law. So again, if you're fabricating this story, why use women as your primary witnesses? Here's another fact that's compelling for me. All of the New Testament books were written within 60 years of the time that Jesus walked this earth. In the case of Paul's letters... They were written 15 to 20 years within Jesus' time. And that means many people from the time of Jesus were still alive when these books were written. And if the stories were not true, the eyewitnesses could have said, no, that didn't happen. And Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, he encourages his readers to do some fact-checking. He says, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to 500 different people. So Paul's like, hey, most of these 500 people are still alive. You can go talk to them. They'll tell you the truth. But you know, for some people, uh, evidence like this is not enough. And they want proof about Jesus that comes from outside the Bible. And I understand that. And it's really very cool. There are several ancient historians that talk specifically about Jesus. Josephus and Tacitus are two of them. And it's pretty amazing. Because of these historians, even if you did not have the Bible, you would know that there was a man, Jesus of Nazareth, and he was crucified by Tiberius Caesar. 
You'd still know that his followers believed that he performed miracles. They believed that he rose from from the dead. And they also believed uh, enough to put their lives on the line when they were persecuted. And these followers began to spread all over the world. Now, I, I won't read you the quotes from these historians, but you can look them up. It's good stuff. Now, for the sake of time, I cut out several questions and responses, but I wanted to close with two important truths, two things about the Bible that are very unique and very special. First, the Bible itself is a miracle. Let's consider this for a moment. Like I said earlier, the 66 books of the Bible were written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different authors from different backgrounds. But all of these authors tell one true story with one unified theme. Do you know how unlikely that would be without divine intervention? My friend Dave Allgaier puts it this way. He says, imagine that you had a time machine. And in this time machine, you went back 1,500 years to the Middle Ages. And then you sneaked up on some medieval guy and you recorded him while he was playing the lute. And then you hop back in your time machine. You go, you go up 300 years. And, and this time you record someone playing a tambourine. And the tambourine player knows nothing about the lute player. And then you just travel back and forth in time until you get 40 different recordings from 40 different musicians. They're all playing different instruments. They don't know that uh, even these 39 people exist besides them. But then what if you combined all of those recordings and then they fit together perfectly to perform a beautiful symphony? We'd call that a miracle, wouldn't we? And that's what we have in the Bible. There's only one composer, just one author, and the Bible has one coherent theme. It's the story of God and his relationship with humanity. We were created by God, we rebelled against Him, and then we were separated from Him. But God still loved us, and He made salvation possible through Jesus. The entire Bible tells this story in perfect harmony. How is that possible? 2 Peter 1.21 tells us how. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So no, this is not a normal book. There's divine intervention here. We have many good reasons to trust the Bible. Now just a word of caution. If you're counting on historical documents and archaeology and scientific evidence to remove every doubt, every question that you have, you're probably not going to find what you're looking for. Evidence like that, it's good and it's important. It helps you to know that you're not a complete idiot to trust in the Bible. But at the end of the day, though, you do have to make a leap of faith. It's not blind faith because we do have good reasons to believe But there's always that gap where you have to take the leap and entrust yourself to God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what God wants to see in us. 
It's faith. It's believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus. And you know what? When you take that leap, that's when you find out that you can trust the Bible. See, the Bible is not an end in itself. It points us to God. Through the Bible, God reveals who he is and how we can come to him. That's the second truth that I wanted to share with you. Why did God give us his word? Well, he didn't want to leave us in the dark. He wants us to know him. He wants us to know that he loves us even though we sinned against him. God wants everyone everywhere to be reconciled to him through a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And that means in our conversations with different people, let's remember that God loves skeptics. He loves atheists. He loves people who aren't even seeking the truth because they just don't care. So for all of us who call ourselves Christians, let's remember, it's, it's not us against them. God is patient and, his, and he's persistent in his love for all of us so we can be patient too. We do need to be ready to share why we believe what we believe, but you don't have to be a Bible expert. If you get stuck, just say, hey, let me dig into that and I'll get back to you. And like I said, if you're looking for resources, I'd be glad to help you with that. Now, if you're listening today and you are not a Christian, you've struggled to believe that the Bible is truly the Word of God, I have one more thing that I want to share with you, and it's this. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's truth. It's a truth you can trust. And my prayer for you is that you would accept that truth and find real life, eternal life, through Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that it still stands despite all of the attacks, despite all of the predictions that it would become irrelevant, your word is still unique and special and powerful and life-changing because it points us to you. It points us to Jesus. So Lord, I, I pray that you will help us to have reasons why we believe what we believe. And I pray for those who are skeptical right now, that they would be open to you, open to hearing your truth and responding to that. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.